This is Relatively Prime. DNA in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. A while ago, I was talking with Mariel Vasquez. M-A-R-I-E-L, Mariel, and then Vasquez is V-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. A professor in mathematics, microbiology, and molecular genetics at UC Davis. With a CV like that, it's really not that hard to guess how the conversation kicked off. Uh, where we have to start is, what is DNA? <laughs> well, DNA is a molecule. Which I'm sure you already know. Hell, y'all probably already know a decent amount of other stuff about DNA, too. Like how those three letters stand for deoxyribonucleic acid, and how it's made up of two strands of nucleotides, which are in turn made up of four nucleobases, cytosine, guanine, adenine, and thymine, deoxyribosugar, and phosphate groups. And how you definitely know that DNA is how life's genetic information is encoded. But that's all biology, and we're here to talk about math. So what is it about DNA that a mathematician might be interested in? What I'm mainly interested in is not necessarily the code, but the shape of the molecule. From the shape point of view, DNA is a right-handed double helical chain of nucleotides that is very, very long and fits inside cells. Now that sounds more mathematical, even if I'm not entirely sure what right-handed means. If you align your thumb with the z-axis and you align the rest of your fingers with the x-axis, then by curling your right, the, the fingers of your right hand, you go from x to y. So the, when you define a helix, as you curl your right hand, the helix goes up. And that's how you can tell whether a helix is right-handed or left-handed. Since we're talking about the shape of DNA, there is a point at which DNA is not actually the right-handed double helix. And that's when life is finding a way, when the DNA is getting copied. Because right before this takes place, enzymes split apart the DNA into two strands so that the copying can happen. From my point of view, I'm really interested in seeing what are the geometrical problems that could arise after copying. And when a mathematician is interested in possible geometric problems in the real world, there's only one thing to do a geometric model. As you can easily understand, if we just think of DNA as linear, there really isn't anything exciting to see. The pair of connected lines would split apart, and after copying, there would just be two pairs of lines, no matter how many right-handed twists we add. But what if we view DNA as a loop? Well, then, actually, before we talk about what would happen then, we should probably make sure that circular DNA even makes sense? Circular DNA occurs in nature all over the place. So all uh, bacterial genomes are circular. The DNA in our mitochondria, and that's in each one of our cells that has a mitochondria, has DNA, and that DNA is circular. And there's DNA of parasites that is circular. I mean, there's many different organisms that have circular DNA. Our DNA DNA in human cells is linear. There's uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes, and each chromosome is a linear piece of DNA. But there's more and more evidence that this DNA is attached at, in many places in such a way that locally it behaves like a circle. So locally it behaves like a loop. 
Good. So talking about DNA as a loop does make sense. Now that we know that, let's think about the problems that this could cause. Let's imagine we have a ribbon, just a regular ribbon, we, a linear ribbon. We introduce twists to the ribbon. Let's make, if we make an odd number of twists and we close the ends, we'll get a Möbius band. DNA is not a Möbius band. DNA is an actual ribbon when you close it. So you need an even number of twists, an even number of turns, and then glue the ends. So let's say we do two turns and then glue the ends. And imagine that this ribbon has a center line that has been drawn. Take your scissors, cut through the center line. That's exactly mimicking what happens during DNA replication. If you cut through the center line, you might be surprised to realize that when you finish, you end up with two circles that are interlinked. And this is what happens to DNA when it gets copied. If a circular DNA molecule gets copied, the resulting daughter DNA molecules are interlinked. And we know the topology of those links, and, uh, and we can study these process from a topological perspective. So some DNA ends up interlinked. That actually doesn't really sound like the end of the world to me. What, what's so bad about some interlinked DNA? If the two DNA molecules are interlinked, then during cell division, either the two interlinked molecules migrate to one cell and the other one has no DNA. So one has twice as much DNA as it needs and the other one has no DNA. Or the chain breaks, which is a bad idea because broken DNA is very vulnerable. It may break in a, in a bad place. It may disrupt a, a gene. My bad. I'm sorry. I, I take it back. Interlinked DNA? Clearly not ideal. Since we are all here, though, alive on this planet and listening to this podcast you have probably guessed that maybe life has figured out a way to deal with this problem. And, well, you're right. In all organisms, from the lowliest bacteria all the way through to the biggest blue whale, there are enzymes called typoisomerases, which unlink DNA loops. Which is a good thing, because, as we just heard, without these enzymes... These cells with the linked DNA loops, well, they die. In fact, there's antibiotics which actually do just that to bacteria. They inhibit these unlinking enzymes, and this causes the bacteria to die and for all of us to feel better. So think about that. Some bacteria are killed by antibiotics through weaponized topology. I can dig that. And in order to create these antibiotics, biologists have developed a very clear sense of exactly how these enzymes act biomechanically and exactly what they are doing to the DNA at the local level. But the local level is not where the fun is, at least not topologically. So instead, let's see how Mariel decided to approach things. As in any applied field, the most important thing is to start with a question. So the answer will depend on the question that you're asking, and the model will depend on the question that you're asking. So this enzyme is some sort of machine. How exactly is it acting? We want to ask questions about topological mechanism, because if you tell the biologist's mechanism, 
mechanisms. They'll say, oh, but we understand the mechanism. And what they mean is they understand the biochemical mechanism locally, how the enzyme binds and cleaves and all the chemistry that is happening locally, that they understand. But what is happening globally at the topological level? So we call it topological mechanism. How are these enzymes recognizing their targets? And how does the geometry of the initial configuration affect the topology of the product? That's the type of questions that we're trying to answer. Now that we have questions, let's back up again to our circular DNA models. Remember, these circles have twists in them, which means we really need to think of them as being embedded in three dimensions, as a circle which is drawn on a flat piece of paper can't exactly have a twist in it. And beyond that, we're even more specifically interested in these twisted loops when they are linked together. So mathematically, what are we talking about here? Full points to the dozen or so of you who just shouted out not theory on public transport. You are my favorite math nerds in the world right now. Mariel went even further than just not theory in the model, though. As when the enzyme is added in, you can think of it as a three-dimensional ball which just goes around one of these links. It turns out the model of the unlinking interaction is equivalent to a two-string tangle, which turns out to be really useful. Mathematicians have studied two-string tangles since, I think, the 1970s with uh, John Conway. And there is a classification of rational two-string tangles. There is a lot of knowledge about the different classes of two-string tangles. So we will use knot theory to study the substrates and products of the enzymatic reaction and tangles to model the actual binding of the enzyme and whatever changes the enzyme mediates will be translated as changes in the tangles. So we have a model and we have the mathematics, which means there's only one thing left. Let's get some answers. Throughout the years, we've obtained lots of answers. So, so for the problem of unlinking, just as, as an example, let's start with six-crossing, right-handed six-crossing torus link that was obtained from DNA replication. We can, we can first prove that if we start with a six-crossing torus link and we go to the unlink, we need at least six steps. So the shortest pathway will have six steps with a specific orientation. Now, if we make the assumption that if we start with six and the product has five or fewer crossings, then we show that the, that the pathway, the minimal pathway, exists and is unique. So that's, that's a quite strong statement. If, if you start with a six-crossing torus link and you go to the unlink, you can only do that by going from the six-crossing torus link to the five-crossing torus knot, to the four-crossing torus link, to the trefoil, to the hop link, to the unknot, and then to the unlink. That's the only possible answer under that assumption. Now, the next question is, well, I don't like assumptions. Because I'm a mathematician, I don't like assumptions. So let's knock out the assumption. What if we allow the six-crossing torus link to go to something with six crossings or fewer? Well, if, if we relax the assumption in that way, then the pathway is not unique anymore. There's nine possible pathways, and that's something we can prove mathematically. There's nine possible pathways 
Okay, then we go back to the biology, and the biologists will look at that and say, nine, no, it's, there's one. I mean, the, the enzymes must be always or almost always doing the same thing. So how can we give support to one of those nine pathways over the others? And that's where computations come in. Computations which involve using the Monte Carlo method and Markov chains and the BFACF algorithm, and which were quite legitimately beyond my ability to fully understand. But if you want to know the hardcore specifics about this computational process, you are in luck because it is the Patreon bonus content this week. So if you're already a backer of Relatively Prime, you can head on over and listen to it right now. But if you're not, and you really want to hear about this computational process, or if you just want to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash relprime. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash relprime. And, you know, help me make rent every month. But, you know, suffice to say, in the end, all the computations, they paid off. So after doing this analysis, we saw that the unique pathway that had been found under the very strict assumption is by far the most probable. So, so that's quite beautiful because you don't need such a strong assumption. And the, the model in silico has no assumptions. We're allowing the complexity to go up or down. You don't need strong assumptions. And still you see that going from 6 to 5 to 4 to 3 to 2 to 1 to 0 is the most likely pathway. Which is absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, clearly it is, given the amount of time and effort I've put forth bringing this to you. I mean, if I hadn't found this interesting, it would be super weird for me to make a podcast about it. But fascinating and interesting or not, I really do try and make sure to do my journalistic due diligence from time to time. I, I understand the use of knowledge for knowledge's sake. I love it personally. But, you know, from the journalist perspective, I do actually have to ask this. Uh, and so is, is there, um, I mean, beyond, beyond just general knowledge and maybe in the future at helping, is there a reason to want to know this now? Well, I see many reasons <laughs> because this is what I work on and I, I, I love it. Um, from... Well, I mean, there's a biomedical application, of course. I mean, if, if one is studying antibiotic resistance and if in particular one is studying resistance to fluoroquinolones that targeted the poisomerases, then studying other possible mechanisms for rescuing the cell is important because the, the problem of antibiotic resistance is a, is a very important problem of public health. I mean, many millions of people get sick every year from, from bacterial infections, and a lot of those people, some thousands of people, die every year from, from strains that were resistant to the treatments that these people were given. So it's important to explore all possible ways that an enzyme can be rescued. How do we know that? Well, we don't know. This is a specific example where we can try to help. Will it be useful? I'm not sure. But 
It's one possible way of rescuing a cell, maybe. So let's try to understand the mechanism on how it works. The other thing that is also very important, so the draft sequence of the human genome was completed. People started saying, oh, well, I mean, this will revolutionize science, and, and it did. But there was this thinking that everything was written in the code. And now there's more and more information that, yes, the code is extremely important, but the way these molecules sit inside the cells, the three-dimensional structure of these molecules is also extremely important. And the structure and the geometry can help regulate how genes are read, how genes are copied. So one needs to really tackle these questions from a structural perspective as well. Uh, genomics is not enough. It's extremely important, but it's not enough. So that's, from a scientific perspective, that's really pressing. Having more people who are using mathematical tools and visualization tools to understand geometry and topology of DNA, of proteins, of RNA. Look at that. Even the due diligence question led to a fascinating answer. That is all the time that we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank my guest, Mariel Vasquez, for giving me so much time, and the AMS and the MAA for the joint mathematics meetings where the conversation which became this episode was recorded. Relatively Prime is brought to you by its amazing patrons on Patreon. If you want to help support the show like Francis McDonald, John Lightborn, and Eric Feinrich have, please head over to patreon.com slash relprime or go to relprime.com and click the support button. If you do, you can get access to all the groovy computational details I skipped over a couple minutes ago. This support is the only reason I can keep making the show, so any help is greatly appreciated. The music in this episode was from Jazar, who you can find at the Free Music Archive or through the show notes for this episode on relprime.com. If you have any feedback for me or you just want to say hi, you can reach me at samuel at acmescience.com. That's my real personal email address. I check it many, many times a day. Like if you send me an email, it will pop up on the lock screen of my phone. So really, it's easy to reach me. And if you want to help the show, but you can't afford to give through Patreon, first of all, I totally understand. I've been there many times in my life. And second, just leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. It really can help bump the show up the rankings and get it in front of more eyes and therefore in more ears hearing my voice, which is really all that I want from this life, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it is. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license, so please feel free to remix my voice to say whatever you like, as long as you say those words originally came from Relatively Prime. So, that's it. Into credits. And as always, remember, the next time you take an antibiotic, it might just be weaponized topology. Oh, and have a matherific week. You thought I forgot it. You thought I wasn't going to do it, but I did. Matherific. Such a terrible word. And if you're still listening, you love it too. Bye. Bye.